The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. As always, I'm delighted that you could join us. Uh, we have a great guest today, as we always do. You can count on us to have great content every week, and this week is no exception. I'm very excited to have one of the principals of an architecture firm in the San Francisco Bay Area called EHDD. In fact, you can check out their website while I'm interviewing uh, Scott Shell. If you want to check out their website and follow along as you listen to this radio show today, don't close this tab in your web browser, open a new tab, and go to www.ehdd.com. Now, the way that I found Scott was through a mutual friend, the editor of a magazine that I look forward to every other month, uh, Green Source Magazine. The editor of that magazine is named Charles Lynn, and he's a good friend of both Scott and myself. And sometimes I go to friends like that and say, you know what, I'm looking for visionaries, I'm looking for leaders in your field, in the field of green architecture, who can you send me that would make a great interview for Go Green Radio? And without hesitation, Charles said, you really ought to talk to Scott Shell. He and his firm are doing some of the most incredible things in sustainable design. And so, Scott, I am thrilled to death to have you on Go Green Radio today. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Jill. I'm super excited to be here today. Well, good. And I, I am very excited to bring your firm's unique uh, perspective on green architecture to our listeners. I think our Go Green Radio listeners are going to be uh, very intrigued, as I was, as they listen to what makes your firm a real standout in this field. Let's start with your firm's competitive edge. You know, uh, a lot of architecture firms have the words, quote-unquote, sustainable design on their websites, but what is it that makes EHDD stand out from the crowd? Well, I, I guess uh, there's there's uh, several things here that I'd like to mention. Uh, first of all is sort of the history or legacy of our firm. We've been around about 60 years, and it was founded by a really interesting group of folks, starting originally with Joe Eshrick and later with uh, Peter Jodge and George Holmesy and Chuck Davis. And, and they developed uh, a process of design, sort of a design philosophy that is really a great fit with sustainable design. And so by that, what I mean is, uh, you know, we don't sort of have a preconceived idea or a style that we apply to a building. We, you know, we don't have this self-conscious approach to design where the heroic architect thinks of an idea and then draws it up. We let our design sort of grow out of the site and out of the client and how they like to live and work in buildings and, for example, uh, at the Sea Ranch, you know, we didn't build on the on the best part of the site. We left that uh, 
as the view and as a, a place that people could use, and we set the building next to that. And the building form responds to those views and to that site. And the windows, say, on the, on the south side of the building, they aren't just applied to the building. They're, they're placed to let daylight wash into a building and illuminate the surfaces, uh, and they're shaded on the south where it's hot, and they control the glare on the west where the sun's down low. And so all of, all of these things sort of shape the design and, and let it grow out of that. And so that is, I think, a, a perfect fit with a, a sustainable design approach. And just the, sounds the very thing, organic, just, you know, the way that you grow a design. It almost sounds like, you know, almost an organic process. It is, and, and too often there's a preconceived idea that uh, is trying to be forced onto a site or onto a program. And ours really grow out of all of those uh, environmental and site conditions. Just I think the other that's a great like approach. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ed. Is, uh, is somehow these really interesting clients find us. And clients with a vision and an open mind, and uh, together we work with them, and we've been able to push the envelope on some things. So whereas uh, 10 years ago not many people were talking about sustainable design, now it seems like most of the profession is. And we've been fortunate to, to work with some clients and really be able to push the envelope to do some net zero energy buildings or some design for deconstruction or some other things that you mentioned in your intro. Well, and I'm excited to talk in more detail about that. In fact, according to your bio, you know, you've been with the firm since 1996 and you've been a, a principal with the firm since 2006. Tell our Go Green Radio listeners about maybe your one or, or two or three favorite projects that you're most proud of when it comes to this concept of sustainable design and why those particular projects stand out in your mind. Well, you know, asking an architect uh, which of their projects is their favorite is kind of like asking which of your kids do you like the most. You're, <laughs> you're going to tr- get me in trouble here, but um, you know, we, we we pour our heart and soul into these things, and they're they're all really special in some way and you know sometimes it's a client you really hit it off with and some move you make that just really fits with their organization or their users sometimes it it's at an inflection point in your career uh or a real innovative sustainable design breakthrough and i guess the point i'd like to make is that uh the the buildings take a long time to design and it may take us a year or more to design it and a couple years to build it. And by the time you get to the end of that, you know, you've already learned a lot. And the field has progressed. And there's things that you would like to put into the design, but it's already under construction and you can't redesign it. So right. The project right. Are, we're doing... Are, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Yeah, the projects we're doing now are, are uh, incorporating a lot more things and have more ambitious goals than they did even five years ago. So I guess I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about the projects we're doing right now because those are the ones I'm most excited about. Go right ahead. That sounds exciting. Um, So uh, a a few years ago, the Packard Foundation issued a very articulate uh, request for proposal. They want to build a new um, uh, building to bring all their staff together in one location. And they ask, you know, what should our goal be? What should our sustainable building goal be? Should it be a U.S. Green Building Council lead platinum-rated building? Should it be a zero-energy building? Should it be a, a living building that um, gathers all its race water, rain, gathers all its own rainwater and treats all its own waste and so forth? And so we spent some time 
asking ourselves that question. And at the time, we were calculating our own uh, greenhouse gas footprint here at the office. And so we knew that the building was going to be just one slice of, of a much bigger uh, pie. And our recommendation to them was that they not focus just on the building, but look at their whole organizational footprint, at their whole sustainability uh, package. And so uh, we went in with that, and they got excited about the idea, and we've been working with them on that. And it's surprising how the building can impact a lot of those other areas. It, it affects transportation, and then it affects how you get to and from the building and to and from your uh, job sites or whatever you're working on, and the food that you bring into that building for your meetings and all your office supplies and all the services and everything. And so they formed a sustainability task force uh, to, to interface with us on that. Uh, we've been able to address some of their uh, flight emissions by really bringing in, uh, emphasizing video technology and video conferencing and really integrating it into the plan of the building uh, to provide an acoustic environment that supports those sorts of things. Um, and just to look at a whole range of things. And it's just been so exciting to broaden our integrated team approach beyond the normal building disciplines into a lot of other fields. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the building becomes sort of the, the heart and soul, but the, the, the rest of the body parts emanate from that. In other words, choices that the, you know, the purchasing manager may make or uh, that the communication specialist may make, all these things can come around that, that central goal of having a sustainable building, but the sustainable operations is just as important to the performance of the building and really reaching the maximum and optimal goals of a, of a green operation. That's pretty exciting. And it's clear, uh, just in what you said a moment ago and also in the, the way that you all sort of word your, your website, it's very clear that the user experience, the building user experience is really important in your design work. How do you research that? Um, how do you ascertain data points that will help you understand what a building user really needs or will really want in order to perform at their best as well? Well, it's a good question, and our, our industry hasn't been that uh, great at this, to be perfectly honest. Um, and we've been we've been trying to change that and be uh, more methodical and, and more professional about that. And, one of the advantages that, that uh, we've had is, is we have a professional research librarian here that came to us from the University of California, and, and she's sort of raised our standards of, of research and our abilities in that area and supports our project teams. The other place we learn a lot is from our clients. As I mentioned, we, we, these amazing clients somehow find us and connect with us, and they often bring a real expertise in their field, whatever it is, and we spend a lot of time with them and at their sites, you know, talking to people and observing how things work and really trying to get to know them. And the building is naturally a reflection of that organization and how they do things. Mm-hmm. And there's and you know, there's one more. Go ahead. Oh, you know, and one of the experiences that I've had the most personal experience with it would be the building of schools. I have three kids in public schools. And one of the things that I'm always amazed with, even though we've been through a couple of new school construction projects, you know, in our, our family's experience, is the, you know, sometimes the ergonomics of what's around the kids just don't seem to match a child's body sometimes and a child's needs. And I'm wondering, you know, if there's a more 
you know, data-driven way of gleaning that kind of information depending on, you know, who the main users will be. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. In fact, early, <laughs> early in my career, I worked on a school and I, I got all the urinals installed about a foot too high and, and you learned <laughs> that lesson pretty quick. Um, one tool that we've been using lately is, uh, for the last five years or so, the Center for the Built Environment at UC Berkeley has a um, web-based occupant uh, survey. And uh, independent of us, they distribute that to the occupants in the building. And all the occupants uh, score the building in a number of different categories, from the building layout and function to thermal comfort or air quality or acoustics or lighting and so forth. And they score it sort of plus three for thumbs up or minus three for thumbs down or anywhere in between. And they tabulate all those scores and benchmark it against hundreds and hundreds of buildings in that database. So you can you get this 50-page report with all this detail in it, and then the users can all comment on these things. And it's just a treasure trove of information. And, you know, uh, you, you do one of those on, on a school, and the next time you do a school, you draw on that. It's just direct feedback loop to the to the users and uh, has really been uh, a great learning tool for us. Well, and in looking at some of your projects, like aquariums, zoos, that sort of thing, I mean, it, you have such a wide variety of users. That has got to be a tremendous challenge as well um, in assessing how to please or how to magnify or, or optimize the experience of someone in a wheelchair, someone who's six feet tall, someone who's four feet tall. I mean, that's got to be a tremendous challenge. Uh, it is, but I think there, you know, people are people. And uh, when I first started in the business, I, I was kind of overwhelmed with how complicated buildings are. And now they seem a lot simpler uh, after you've spent some time doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, what we've been finding is that the, the, the buildings that have been uh, scoring at the very top of the CBE survey are are also the ones that have been the most efficient. And so we find that there are synergies between these things. You know, if you do give people a good environment, you know, whether they're in school or at work, people want daylight and they want views and they want a window they can operate and they don't want to be too hot or too cold. And uh, I think sometimes people think that if you get a green building or a sustainable building, you have to give up something or that you're going to be a little bit less comfortable. But we found exactly the opposite. Our our buildings that are most efficient and most sustainable have scored at the very, very top of the scale. Well, and that's, that's a great thing to, to even contemplate. And I want to talk more about that when we come back. We'll be heading to a commercial break now, folks, but don't go away. We have more with Scott Shell and his leading architecture firm, EHDD, in green architecture. So don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African-American, just like you. So here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back. What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking with Scott Shell. He's a principal at the architecture firm EHDD, and I'd love for you, as you listen to this interview, I'd love for you to follow along. Take a look at the firm's website. Now, don't close this web browser. Keep listening to us live on voiceamerica.com, but if you would open a new tab in your web browser, you can check out Scott's firm's website at www.ehdd.com. 
Com. Scott is a principal with this architectural firm. He mentioned to us in the last segment, they've been around for 60 years. And their philosophy is very, very uh, supportive of this whole idea of sustainable design. Even before that was the big buzz phrase, they were doing things in a, almost an organic way and working with their clients, working with the position and the, the land and the geography around the building sites to ensure user comfort and, and a real pleasant experience for the building users. Now, before we went to commercial break, Scott was talking to us about how just because you have a quote-unquote green building or a sustainable design does not mean that you're sacrificing comfort or user uh, qualitative experience. Um, in fact, what he said he's found is that when you have a green building, you often have a much more comfortable user experience. Scott, I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more. How do you measure that, and what makes you say that, that a green building can actually be a more comfortable comfortable building for the users? I think the, uh, the CBE survey that I talked about um, lets the users you know, score the building on thermal comfort and uh, air quality and other things, and so we can directly see that data and read direct user comments uh, uh, on their feedback for that. And so that's sort of the occupant satisfaction and comfort piece. Uh, the other piece that we try and collect is the um, technical performance, or say the energy performance of the building. And it's probably a little bit of a shock to, to some of the listeners, but most buildings are not very smart about that. And at best, uh, they have an energy meter, which gives you one number, the total amount of energy you used at the end of the month. But unlike our cell phone, you know, it doesn't just a cell phone doesn't just tell you how many minutes you talked. You can look back and see who you talked to for how long and at what time. And that's what we're trying to do with energy monitoring to see what in our building is working and how much energy is it using. Well, so, talk to us about that. Tell us about those metrics and and how long you track it. Uh, how, how after you build a building, how long are you still tracking that building's performance? Well, we, we have been putting in um, energy tracking uh, hardware and software that uh, we can see over the Internet and that our clients can then use to tune and operate the building. And we try and measure the different parts of it separately. So we'll try and measure the lighting separately from the heating and air conditioning, separate from the um, appliances that you plug into the wall. And a, a really informative example uh, is the Chartwell School and we had some energy tracking on that. And when we were looking back at the performance, we, we weren't meeting the energy efficiency targets we were set. And I was all upset about it. You know, what did we do wrong? What did we screw up? And when we started looking at the detailed data, we could see, wow, the, the lighting at night is really high. And we talked to the school, and they said, oh, yeah, well, we're, you know, our security guy told us to leave all our lights on in the site all night long. Well, that was 20% of their annual energy use, and so we made an adjustment there. So that detail level of tracking has really helped us um, manage our buildings much better. That really is smart, and I, I, I'm sure that, you know, and, and I'd like to go into this because I know this is a big focus, your net zero energy buildings. Um, you know, you and I had a conversation last week, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, green building has, you know, been in vogue for a few years now, but it's really just been recently that folks have been looking at the carbon footprint of buildings. And, of course, that's related to energy, but how, 
I know that in in pursuing this goal of net zero energy buildings, there's a carbon component that you're that you're looking at as well. How how is all that measured? Talk to us about these net zero energy buildings. I think the main thing uh, for us is for for years we were trying to see if we could improve our energy efficiency, and so we say, okay, can we can we do ten percent better than we did last time? And I think what we're now learning and what we've learned through some of the scientists that we've uh, designed labs for uh, that are studying climate change is the scale of change that we all have to make. You know, we're, I mean, whether it's California's AB32 or whatever goal you, you read about, there seems to be this consensus that we need an 80% reduction by 2050. Well, that's, that's not just, we're not going to get there by doing these little incremental changes. And so if instead we ask what scale of change do we need or what scale of improvement do we need in buildings to reach these goals, it's really to get to zero energy because there's a bunch of buildings out there that are already built and there's others that are going to be very, very challenging like hospitals or high-rises. And so we need to learn how to do zero energy buildings on this uh, for our, most of our building types. And our Talk formula to us for that, about that. Some simple. of our Go Green Radio listeners may not know what you mean by net zero energy. Define that for us, and then we'll talk more about how, how we're going to go about achieving that. But what does that really mean, net zero energy? Yeah, so the, the basic formula that we use is really simple. Is, is we try and design a new building to use half as much energy or thereabouts, less if we can, as, it would, as a new equivalent building would in California, and we have a pretty good energy code. So that's a very, very energy-efficient building. And then we need to find some source of renewable energy um, to supply that remaining amount of energy. And for us, that has been uh, either photovoltaic solar panels or solar hot water panels. In other locations, it might be wind or some other form of renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now go ahead and talk us through how, how you're applying that. So we started out, we, we kind of got into that a little bit accidentally about 10 years ago with a product uh, project for the Audubon Society down in Los Angeles, the Audubon Center at Debs Park. And um, it was a long way from the utilities, so we said, well, let's just, instead of paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to run pipes and wires, let's just make it off the grid uh, with photovoltaics for energy and uh, treating its own wastewater and so forth. And then we slowly started doing uh, smaller projects and learning how to do it, and it, it cost less than we thought, and it worked better than we thought. Uh, all of our other projects have been connected to the grid, so we don't have to have batteries to store the electricity. And over a net zero energy building is one that over the course of a year produces as much energy as it consumes. And so you produce a lot during the daytime in the summer, and you don't produce any at night, and uh, you produce a little bit during the winter, and then at the end of the year, it's supposed to all average out to um, zero. I see, I see. And and how do you think um, this concept can be applied in different geographies? I mean, there's a wide range of weather patterns. Uh, even just last week, I think it was, or the week before, I read an article about how the California Coastal Commission had not allowed a couple to put up you know, wind on their home on the California coast, they, they couldn't put up, um, you know, wind power. So, you know, this, there's a number of public policy, you know, decisions that will have to be made in order to facilitate net zero energy buildings. I mean, when you look into your crystal ball, what do you think 
the future will hold for these types of buildings and how readily available will they be to people who are, you know, in the, in the market to build. Yeah, you know, I think we're still early in the cycle, and uh, there's, you know, if you look at the National Renewable Energy Lab's Zero Energy Building Database, there's only about eight on there, and they're small. Uh, we have a handful of, we've completed about five now and have a couple of bigger ones, including the Packard Foundation, which is a pretty big office, and the Exploratorium, which is a big 200,000-square-foot building that are about to start construction. And so, and we're not in a, you know, we're in a pretty good climate. It's pretty mild here, and we get pretty good sun here. But there's lots of places that have great resources, and they're local. So, for example, in the in the mid in lots of the middle of the country, the wind is a fabulous resource. Uh, we do have to, you know, make sense of the planning issues and views and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the solar resource is great in lots of the country. Other places have uh, lots of uh, biomass that they can use. There was a recent project that used um, uh, uh, excess wood fiber uh, to generate uh, heat and electricity for a big project. So I think the solutions will be varied, and we need the whole industry to start uh, working on this and finding solutions that fit local conditions and local budgets. Well, and you said a mouthful there. I mean, that's the perfect approach. Sometimes, you know, we find folks who who have come together with, you know, people who maybe like the Audubon Society or others who are very visionary, and they create a model project. Uh, but sometimes that exact template can't be replicated everywhere, and so we get stumped and say, well, if we can't do it with solar panels, then, uh, you know, maybe it just won't work. But I, I love this approach that... You know, there are resources wherever you go uh, that can be used, whether it's biomass, whether it's methane, whether it's geothermal. There's all kinds of different resources um, that people were using 200 years ago in those same locations that we might be able to incorporate into modern architecture, and I love that whole mindset. We're going to go to commercial break here and just uh, hang on with us, Go Green Radio listeners. We will be right back. We're going to talk to Scott about some very innovative ways that they go about uh, de- developing their designs, an interdisciplinary approach, which I think is very exciting. So don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. News. News. Opinion. Can you hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. 
Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. Today we are talking with Scott Shell. He's a principal with the architectural firm EHDD out of San Francisco. If you want to look at their website while we're interviewing Scott, please feel free to do that. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Open a new tab and visit their website at www.ehdd.com. Scott, one of the things that I really kind of perked up about when I saw it on your website was that you use an interdisciplinary approach to design. Does that mean that you have people who aren't architects who work with your firm to collaborate on designs, or what does that mean, interdisciplinary approach? Yeah, a, a building takes a lot of different expertise areas, and um, and we they are not officially a part of our firm, but we always put a team together for a project that includes you know, structural engineers and mechanical engineers and landscape architects and lighting designers and, you know, graphics or transportation and just a whole range of people. And I, I spend a fair amount of time trying to get to know those people and, you know, find the very, very best people to collaborate with because they they, they do a lot of good work and we get the credit for it. And so we work <laughs> very early in the design process and um, – Try and affect the fundamental ideas in an integrated, interdisciplinary way, and it's it's a lot of fun. How did you learn to do that? I mean, it seems like such a simple thing um, to bring in experts in a variety of fields, and yet I have a suspicion that not every architectural firm does that. So, I mean, is that just part of the culture of your firm that you inherited, or was that an idea you came up with? on your own to do that, to incorporate those other, you know, subject matter experts into the design phase. Yeah, it's, it is very much a part of the tradition here, and so I'm, I'm just really fortunate to have landed here. And early in my career, I, you know, it wasn't that way. The architect would come up with a scheme, and then you'd send off the drawings to everybody else, and they'd stuff all their stuff inside of it in a sort of tortured way sometimes. <laughs> I think the profession in general has been, now recognizes that this is a preferred way and is, is, is trying to move there. Well, I think that's, that's 
really, really smart, and I'm sure it's much more efficient, maybe even more cost-efficient as well, to have everybody talking at the giddy-up instead of trying to sort of retrofit some of these other elements into the design. Um, I, I really enjoyed your website, and, and you know, there's really no uh, reason for an architecture firm to have a fun or cute website. I mean, you could just be totally, you know, stodgy, professional, here's who we are. But you have some cute stuff up there. And one of the the pieces that I really enjoyed were some images on your website showing your staff dressed in protective suits, uh, working to make your office zero waste. And I would really encourage Go Green Radio listeners to check it out because it was, it was kind of a cute little segment of the website. Now, of course, those of us who work with solid waste management know that one of the byproducts of garbage. Of course, a lot of buildings create a lot of garbage, but one of the byproducts of that is methane, and that's a greenhouse gas that's 21 times more potent than carbon. Is EHDD testing out some best practices? I know that you have a goal of creating a zero-waste office space. Are you testing out some best practices so that perhaps you can ultimately design buildings that are both net zero energy and net zero methane? Well, that's a good question. There's a number of things that we're doing. Um, I think you, you saw the pictures of our trash party, and yep. our staff <laughs> got all excited about this and said, well, let's, let's measure our trash, and we take away all the recyclables and see what we have left. And for us, it was about 45% compostable, so we started a big composting effort. And, you know, you get closer and closer to zero. On our On our buildings, there's several different waste streams. There's the construction debris, you know, things left over when you're building the building. And then there's the operational waste stream of the, you know, whoever the organization is in the building. And then at the end of the life, there's the uh, debris of the building, uh, demolition waste. And so um, there's some tools out there. The EPA has a calculator uh, called WARM, I think, that lets you calculate the uh, methane and other emissions from the land, the debris in a landfill. And we've been really trying to attack each of those. LEED has really promoted uh, construction uh, waste management, and it's now not uncommon to get, you know, 75% uh, waste aversion or more from the construction process. So, you know, progress is definitely being made. California is, you know, a pretty progressive environment to do that, so it's actually not that difficult here because the policies really support it. Right. Now, you know, in terms of deconstruction and waste and, and construction debris, um, I want to talk about another part of your website. And actually, for Go Green Radio listeners who may be checking out your website while they're listening to this episode, um, in addition to clicking on the Trash Party tab, which I think is a riot uh, and really fun, if you click on the Design for Deconstruction tab, you're going to find a download on EHDD's website that I found really fascinating. Now, our mutual friend, Charles Lynn, who's the editor of Green Source Magazine, uh, will tell you that though I am a layman, I read a lot about green architecture. I wouldn't consider myself a groupie, but maybe a fan. I do go to fan status, but I read a lot about green building and green architecture. And honestly, Scott, I haven't seen anybody talking about what your firm is doing, uh, this design for deconstruction. Won't you talk to us about that whole concept and what you're doing in that regard? Yeah, I, this is, again, one of those wonderful stories. You know, you, I, I met some crazy curly-haired guy at a conference who was a <laughs> researcher at the University of Florida at the time, and he was taking apart buildings, and 
measuring exactly what all was in them and how much you could recover. And he had this idea of us doing a study to can we design buildings so they're easy to take apart because they were a real pain in the neck for him to take apart. And mm-hmm. early in my career out here in California, I worked for a, for a great architect, Chester Bowles, and doing a, a school modernization, the, the windows were installed, and then the cement plaster on the outside came and wrapped around and sort of concealed the windows or buried the windows so you couldn't take them out without taking the skin of the building off. Mm-hmm. And so you take the windows out, you take the skin of the building off, and pretty soon you're down to the bare structural frame. And so our, our task in this research project um, that the EPA uh, funded was to um, try and develop new construction details to make it easier to maintain the building and replace components as they wore out, and then ultimately at the end of the building's life to um, take these components out and reuse them or recycle them much more cost-efficiently in order to extend the, um, the lifespan of our buildings and our materials. Well, and some people might say, gosh, you know, if we're going to be building sustainable buildings and we're going to be talking about sustainable design, shouldn't that mean that they're durable, that they should last forever? I mean, we've got buildings around that were, you know, constructed during antiquity. Um, but, of course, there's, there's a reality check in all of that. What, what is your thought about the difference between sustainability and durability and, you know, this this bridge concept of designing for deconstruction, what is your firm's position on that, that kind of thinking? Well, I, you know, I think the, I love the uh, durable buildings, and I remember um, David Eisenberg showed an image of the city center in Bern, Switzerland, and these beautiful masonry buildings with tall, elegant windows. And, uh, you know, he said these buildings were built in the year 800. They're 1,200 years old. And, you know, there's something really appealing about that. On the other hand, those buildings have had their windows replaced many times, and their interiors have been redone many times, and their roofs have been replaced. And I think they're just, there is a reality. It's, it's often not the building falling apart that leads to its demise. It's, it's a design that people don't like. They don't like the way it looks, or it doesn't bring daylight in in a nice way or the land use changes. And so I think design for deconstruction is not just about the end of life and the demolition of the building. It's about designing a building you can maintain for a long time and replace components only when they need replacing. Mm, Very smart. Very, very smart. I would really encourage anyone uh, who is even remotely interested to read this download on ehdd.com, Design for Deconstruction, because it really is a very interesting uh, concept. Even anybody who's ever remodeled their home knows how difficult it can be to add on or to, you know, change your windows, change your roof, change a door. And were these elements taken into account during the design phase, it would be a whole lot easier and a lot more cost-effective. And, you know, you even mentioned this, Scott. Sometimes even from the time that you begin a design to the time that the building's built, uh, there'll be new research new ideas, new uh, discoveries made in your field uh, that, you know, if you could retrofit a building or if you could upgrade a a design uh, after these discoveries are made, wouldn't that be terrific? Um, So it sounds like, you know, design for deconstruction will allow buildings to take advantage of new technologies as they come into into play. That's exactly right, and and we found that uh, to be the case, and 
some building components are already designed to be replaced, uh, but most are not. And it just seems like a natural step uh, after you specify green or recycled materials, then make those materials ones that you can um, take apart and recover and salvage and reuse in a future um, application. You know, in your bio, I was really interested to see that you're actually the director of sustainability for your firm. Uh, in an architectural firm, what does that mean? What do you do in your job capacity to, as the director of sustainability for EHDD? A lot of what I do is set big goals and, and say, look, if we want to design a, if we need to design a zero energy building and we'd like to set that as a target. Um, a lot of what I do is get out of the way of our staff. We just have an amazing, incredible group of folks here, and they say, hey, I want to organize a trash party, and I just say, okay. So um, <laughs> there are various roles, but um, it, it's a fun role to have. I get to meet lots of interesting people, um, go to interesting conferences, and learn a lot, and then bring that back and try and share all that information with um, all of our uh, team here. Well, it sounds like you're expanding your your sphere of understanding well beyond what you may have been taught as you were in school to become an architect. And that's something I, I'd love to touch on a little bit about, you know, how are we preparing our architects of the future for the sustainable design needs of our society in the 21st century? But we're going to have to wait. I'm at a hard stop. I need to take a commercial break. But right after we come back, I'm going to ask Scott that question about how we prepare the young architects of the 21st century for the challenges they will face as they design the buildings of the 21st century. So don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hi. My name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote. And then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Interstate Sportsman Talk radio show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news, talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join hosts Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I want to give a big shout out to all my tweets out there on Twitter. I know you guys are following us, listening to us live on voiceamerica.com. If you just think this is an episode that you want to hear again or that your friends should really be listening into, don't fret if they missed the live uh, episode today because they can hear us again on the Green Talk radio uh, station, which is the network you'll find if you go to voiceamerica.com and click on Green Talk Network. We are syndicated on that station, and you can listen to Go Green Radio on Tuesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific, and that's noon to 1 p.m. on the East Coast, and everybody in the middle can figure out your time zone. That's when we are uh, going to replay the show next Tuesday, so let all your friends know. Well, we are delighted to have Scott Shell with us. He's a principal with the firm EHDD. You can check him out at ehdd.com, an architectural firm that's really leading the way when it comes to sustainable design. Now, Scott, I have a question for you because this kind of reflects my interaction with today's youth. I'm the founder and executive director of the largest environmental education program in the world, the Go Green Initiative. So I'm always concerned about not just preparing our children for the future, but preparing the future for our children. So my question to you is, are today's architecture students being adequately prepared to design the kinds of buildings that will meet the environmental challenges of the 21st century while they're in school? Or is it your impression they're going to have to learn about sustainable design on the job? Yeah, I think the uh, the schools have really uh, embraced this. Most of the schools have. Uh, a few years ago, uh, it was sort of more focused in a few particular schools, and now it's uh, much more broadly uh, available. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges uh, in all of this is just the preconceptions uh, that you bring to these questions. And students aren't always uh, bound by those preconceptions as much as professionals are. So they have a lot of freedom to rethink things, and I think they're in a great position. The profession still think- is very much an apprenticeship. It's, it's a generalist process- profession, and there's, there's a lot to learn. And it takes time. And so there is a lot of apprenticeship and learning on the job. But the, the fundamentals that the students can get in school are really profound and important. And I just really encourage people to, to follow their instincts and follow their interests and find those things that they want to study. Well, and perhaps follow folks like you as a role model. You've taken on this role as the director of sustainability and reaching out to other subject matter experts to better understand the the issue of sustainability uh, and then incorporating that into what you already know about the science of of archi- architecture so um, you know there's there's definitely something to be said about learning from role models like yourself now EHDD designs for projects in many different locations. And, you know, even before people started thinking about green buildings or sustainable designs, the building codes and standards for regions 
have differed widely for, for many, many years. But now that some places are beginning to adopt the U.S. Green Building Council's lead standards and some regions are creating their own green building codes, has that made your work as an architect even more difficult in terms of compliance? You know, I think I've been uh, trying to figure that one out because we do work in a lot of different jurisdictions and they do have a lot of different codes. And it is it is a hassle sometimes to meet all those requirements, but the sustainability ones in general haven't uh, been as difficult. And maybe it's because we're just very familiar with that, and we're sort of ahead of the curve on that. In fact, mm-hmm. in some ways, it's made it easier because as these uh, standards like LEED have become more widespread, the contractors then know about how to build these systems, and the manufacturers have come in with materials that a few years ago were really hard to get, and now it's sort of more standard practice. And then I think finally, the um, for our projects that are really trying to, to reach and create a new model, um, as, as the baseline rises, the delta between that baseline or benchmark and where we're going is smaller, and it's mm-hmm. not as large of a stretch. And so in that way, these standards have really helped support our work and, and in a lot of ways made it easier. Well, that's good. I mean, that's very good to hear. Um, And I have to ask, because a lot of my Go Green radio listeners know that I dabble in public policy now and (laughs) again. On the flip side of that question, does your firm insert itself somehow into the public policy-making, you know, decision arena so that your expertise with sustainable building is somehow offered up uh, for those who will be making these building standards and codes and ordinances so that they can have expert opinion before they actually codify these standards? Uh, we have done some of that, and uh, there's a, the California Public Utilities Commission has a zero energy buildings working group that I've been participating in, and my, one of my partners, Jennifer Devlin, has, uh, was president of the um, AIA San Francisco chapter and helped bring a lot of these uh, things to the fore there. So we participate in some ways. I think perhaps the most direct way we do is by creating examples that the policymakers can then point to. And we publish the cost information for them. And I think the costs are a lot less than most people assume. And so when we design a school that's uh, that it uses much less electricity or no electricity that's the same price as a conventional public school in California, it gives the policymakers an example to point to that help uh, show that it is possible and that it can be done. Oh, that's excellent. I mean, sharing best practices and sharing these case studies is, uh, is really, really valuable, and, and, and I'm sure that public policymakers gain a lot of confidence when they see uh, you know, what might otherwise seem kind of pie in the sky in practice. So just exactly. from my own perspective, I want to thank you for sharing that information. You don't have to as a private company, and, and so I think that's really valuable. You know, last summer I was really lucky. I had an intern from USC who studies urban planning uh, and one from Princeton who studies architecture. And I watched these two interns think through and talk through issues where they're focus of studies should overlap, and it was pretty amazing. And though I asked them over and over again, are your professors explaining the connection between urban planning and sustainable architecture? That wasn't always the case, but my interns totally got how their fields of study should really 
correlate and collaborate. How often do you find in the real world these types of conversations and collaborations happening between urban planners and architectural firms? Is that an institutionalized kind of conversation, or is that just happening, you know, kind of ad hoc? Yeah, I think, frankly, right now, we don't have a very strong planning tradition in the U.S. It's much stronger in other countries, and, you know, it varies widely around the U.S., but generally, it's, it's, uh, there's not a strong planning tradition here, so that conversation is not had uh, nearly often enough. Now, that said, there is just the beginning kernel of, uh, of excitement around that idea, and it's, a, it's an issue that we are just particularly excited about and think there is so much potential you know, as I alluded about the Packard Foundation, to, to bring in transportation and food and all these other sorts of um, issues and think about the design of these cities or communities is just really uh, where I think a lot of the excitement on the green building uh, frontier is. And it's, you know, it can be, it can be a little depressing sometimes to, to follow all the news and look at all the challenges and problems and read the science of it. But to, to come in and have a chance to work on, you know, how does urban planning and green buildings intersect and how can we create sort of the new communities that we all want to live in? You know, how do we want to live and what the kind of quality of life do we want? You know, that, that's an exciting thing and uh, I think something that we'll see a lot more of in the, in the decade ahead. I'm glad to hear that because even if we could just replicate the kind of conversations I saw between these two young, bright women who are going to be taking the 21st century by storm in their fields of study. I just know it. Um, I'd love to see that kind of thing replicated. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on Go Green Radio. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back next week, same time, same place, with more great information about how our country and our world is going green. Till then, be well and go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.